We are in Ezekiel, and we left off at 14 and 11, I believe, last time. We sort of zipped through the first part of 14, which is probably okay, but I did want to make a point. The first part of 14 is talking about the elders of Israel who came and sat before Ezekiel, and they were still worshiping idols. So the rest of this has to do with how God feels about his own people who inquire of his prophets while they are still in the process of worshiping idols. He says that it will be very bad for both the one who inquires and for the prophet. One of the things that's happened is, as we said last time, prophecy is really big business. And you have lots and lots of people that go into the prophecy business for business purposes. And they are giving prophecies that people like to hear, but are not from God. So what God has says is he'll match those prophets up with the idolaters, which is what he said is sort of the end. But the other thing to understand here is the pathology that's going on in Israel is Israel believes in God. They believe in Yehovah. They know all the stories from the Torah, but they have gotten to the point where they treat Yehovah as one of a smorgasbord of gods and they treat him, oh, you want a prophecy, you go to this place and you ask this God, you want to go prop this, you go to another place. And he has just become one of a pantheon of gods. And God won't allow that. And that's what this first half of chapter 14 is about. So continuing now in 14:12, And the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, when a land sins against me by acting faithlessly, and I stretch out my hand against it and break its supply of bread and send famine upon it and cut off from it man and beast, even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in it, they would deliver but their own lives by their righteousness, declares the Lord God. That says a whole bunch of stuff. First off, it talks about the character of Noah, Daniel, and Job. Each of those guys was very different. With the exception of Daniel, both Noah and Job had their faults. Remember Noah, first thing he did was planted himself a vineyard and started treading out wine and got drunk. So Noah is not a shining example of the perfect life. Neither is Job. Because you remember when Job gets into all his trouble, he whines and he moans and he complains and all that kind of stuff. And he does everything just short of cursing God and dying. And at the end of the day, God upbraids Job. The very famous, were you there when I laid out the plumb line for the earth and all that kind of stuff. And of course, Job at the end of the day realizes that he's been more whiny than he needs to be. But it's important to understand that both of these two men, Job and Noah, were flawed. Daniel is one of two men, other than Yeshua, about whom nothing bad is written in Scripture. The other one is Joseph. They're both bureaucrats, by the way. What God is saying here is, when it's time for me to bring a disaster, if these three guys were in the nation, they would not be able to save anyone but themselves. Now, that says several things. One is it says that the presence of the righteous serves as a protection for the rest. You realize that for a couple of reasons. 
One of the reasons you recognize it is God has a policy of blessing people around the people he likes. Because you remember one of the reasons Laban didn't want to turn loose of Jacob is because Laban recognized, whoa, God's blessing you and I'm prospering. So I don't want to turn loose of you. So the presence of righteous people is a protection. And you remember when God gets ready to sand off Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham starts talking with him. And Abraham talks him down to ten. And Abraham gets God to agree that if he can find ten righteous men in Sodom, I won't destroy it. So you need to see this in that light. What this is saying is God cares about the behavior of his Zadokim, his righteous ones. Saying that those men are righteous partially because of their behavior, partially because of their relationship with God. Each of them had a relationship with God. None of them knew Yeshua other than as a promise. Now they all knew Yeshua as a promise. The promise of the Messiah starts in the Torah and goes forward. But they had a relationship with God and they were righteous in their behavior. And God is saying, no matter how bad it gets, those three guys would get pulled out. Verse 15, if I cause wild beasts to pass through the land and they ravage it, and it be made desolate so that no one may pass through because of the beasts, even if these three men were in it, as I live, declares the Lord God, they would deliver neither sons nor daughters. They alone would be delivered, but the land would be desolate. He is clearly talking about the personal righteousness of these three men. And if things get bad enough, the protection that they would normally provide to their families, that they would normally provide to the cities where they live, that radius of protection has shrunk to one foot. And that's the foot they're standing on. Verse 17. Or if I bring a sword upon the land and say, let a sword pass through the land, and I cut off from it man and beast, though these three men were in it, as I live, declares the Lord, they would deliver neither sons nor daughters, but they alone would be delivered. Or if I send a pestilence into the land and pour out my wrath upon it with blood to cut off from it man and beast, even if Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, as I live, declares the Lord, they would deliver neither son nor daughter. They would deliver but their own lives by their righteousness. 21. For thus says the Lord God, how much more when I send upon Jerusalem my four disastrous acts of judgment, sword, famine, wild beasts, and pestilence, to cut off from it man and beasts. Where are we going to see those again? Revelation 6, everybody says with one voice. Those are the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And I heard somebody, I don't remember who it was, teaching on the book of Revelation. He was talking to a rabbi about it, and the rabbi's comment about the book of Revelation is that's a stolen book. You see, as we've seen in Ezekiel as we've gone through, we keep getting dumped forward into Revelation, and you see the same stuff happening again. But behold, some survivors will be left in it, sons and daughters who will be brought out. Behold, when they come out of you and you see their ways and their deeds, you will be consoled for the disaster that I have brought upon Jerusalem, for all that I have brought upon it. They will console you when you see their ways and their deeds. You shall know that I have not done without cause all that I have done in it, declares the Lord God. 
So what do you suppose their ways and their deeds are? What are we talking about here? Righteousness. How do we know that? Because God has sent through the man with the ink horn. Remember? And he has marked on the foreheads all of those who sigh and moan over the iniquity that is done in Jerusalem. And he says then to his three destroying angels, go through and kill everybody that doesn't have my mark on his forehead. So the criteria, criterion, for getting the mark is that you disapprove of the abominations into which the nation has fallen. Which tells me that these guys are doing things like writing letters to the editor. And, no, I'm serious. I, I, I'm, I'm dead serious. You know, people are sort of snickering. But they are people who are saying this stuff that is going on in this country at this time is wrong. Whatever the forum that you're in, you need to talk about this stuff. And you need to explain to people that this is serious. And as we read earlier in Ezekiel, that was the criteria for having the first angel go through and mark you on the forehead. This is based on what you do. It is not the case that God just sort of waltzed through there with the righteousness angel and just sort of dusted people. No, 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 no. There was criteria for how he chose those who would survive. And we've been talking in terms of Noah, Daniel, and Job who in their actions and behavior were righteous. If you look at the disaster that each of them went through, Job's was personal. In other words, he was persecuted for himself. Daniel's was national. He was taken out with Israel when they were sanded off. And of course, Noah's was global. So again, you could look at it as being, if you will, in type, covering every possible level of disaster. Chapter 15. And the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, how does the wood of the vine surpass any wood? The vine branch that is among the trees of the forest. Is wood taken from it to make anything? Do people take a peg from it to hang any vessel upon it? Behold, it is given to the fire for fuel. When the fire is consumed, both ends of it and the middle of it is charred. Is it useful for anything? Behold, when it was whole, it was used for nothing. How much less when the fire has consumed it and it is charred? Can it ever be used for anything? Therefore, thus says the Lord God, like the wood of the vine among the trees of the forest, which I have given to the fire for fuel, so I have given up the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and I will set my face against them. Though they escape from the fire, the fire shall yet consume them, and you will know that I am the Lord when I set my face against them. And I will make the land desolate because they have acted faithlessly, declares the Lord God. So what's going on here? Let's look at the metaphor of the vine. Now he talks about the vine in terms of its wood. You know, it's twisty and, you know, you can't really use it for anything except to burn. However, you can use it for something. What? Fruit. So while Israel is bearing fruit, the fact that she is on this twisty, curly, otherwise useless piece of wood is of no consequence. So what does that say about Israel in this chapter? She has ceased to bear fruit. So a vine that has ceased to bear fruit is of no use whatsoever. The wood from it cannot be used for any other purpose except to burn. 
And then once you burned it, what can you use it for then? The whole point of a vine is to be fruitful. And so when God is ready to rip up a vineyard, what that tells you is it has ceased to bear fruit. And it is good for nothing except to be burned. Who is he talking about here? Jerusalem specifically, and we are going to continue in chapter 16, which is a longish chapter, and we're going to continue talking about Jerusalem. Now, you can take that a couple of ways. You can take it as being literal Jerusalem. You can also take it as being Jerusalem as we would talk about Washington, as being the heart of the nation. And it works actually both ways. And he shifts back and forth with his metaphor to make it not very clear which way he intends it to be taken. So let's dive into chapter 16. Again, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, make known to Jerusalem her abominations. And say, thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, your origin and your birth are of the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. And as for your birth, on the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling clothes. No, I pitied you to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you. But you were cast out in an open field, for you were abhorred on the day that you were born. Well, Canaanites, Amorites, and Hittites, or any of those... Israelites, maybe. That's why I say it's sort of ambiguous. Clearly, Jerusalem was a Jebusite city when David took it, in the land of Canaan. So you could look here as if this were a city in the land that was occupied and built by non-Hebrews. If you look at Judah, who do the descendants of Judah come through? Tamar. What is Tamar? Nobody knows. Nobody knows where Tamar came from. And you have Ruth, who came in as a Moabitess. So this could be talking about Judah. I don't know. I'm not pushing very hard either way. It could be talking about the literal city, or it could be talking about Jerusalem as metaphoric for Judah, which is the southern kingdom. When it comes time to take the test, you could put either one, and I'll accept either answer. I don't know. And you'll see that this metaphor goes back and forth as we go on. Verse 6. And when I passed by you and saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you in your blood, live. And I said to you in your blood, live. I made you flourish like a plant of the field, and you grew up and became tall and lived in full adornment. Your breasts were formed and your hair had grown, yet you were naked and bare. When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love. And I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. Then I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. I clothed you also with embroidered cloth and shod you in fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk. And I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrists and a chain on your neck. I put a ring on your nose and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver, and your clothing was of fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour and honey with oil. 
you grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. And your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty, for it was perfect. Through the splendor that I had bestowed upon you, declares the Lord God. Again, that works either for Judah or for Jerusalem. I tend to like Jerusalem better, but that doesn't mean I'm right. Because what's going to happen is he's going to talk about her falling in the Torah. God says three times every year, your men will all go up to the place where I put my name. The Torah does not specify Jerusalem. It simply says, you'll go up to the place where I put my name. That starts off at Shiloh. And then under King David, it's moved to Jerusalem. Here he's clearly talking about Jerusalem. And one of the things that happens, as we'll see in a minute, in Jerusalem, is that same city becomes idol central. So you can see it very clearly as the city, but of course underlying the city of the people. The city is not out there carving idols, and the city is not out there doing this stuff. He works through people. So it works either way. And obviously, in case nobody had noticed, we're talking in very, very romantic terms. This is clearly a romance. This is not a business deal. In other words, he hasn't picked her up and set her up in a business sense. He has set her up because he loves her. And he has given her everything that he knows how to give someone he loves. So this is clearly a love story. And what we'll see next is how she breaks his heart. 15, but you trusted in your beauty and played the whore because of your renown and lavished your whorings on any passerby, your beauty became his. You took some of your garments and made for yourself colorful shrines and on them played the whore. The like has never been, nor ever shall be. You also took your beautiful jewels of my gold and of my silver, which I had given you, and made for yourself images of men, and with them played the whore. And you took your embroidered garments to cover them, and set my oil and my incense before them, also my bread that I gave you. I fed you with fine flour and oil and honey. You set before them for a pleasing aroma. And so it was, declares the Lord God. And you took your sons and your daughters whom you had borne me, and these you sacrificed to them to be devoured. In other words, they went into human sacrifice. Were your whoring so small a matter that you slaughtered my children and devoured them up as an offering by fire to them, them being idols again? And in all your abominations and your whorings, you did not remember the days of your youth, when you were naked and bare and wallowing in your blood. She's taken all of the wealth that God has given her as a lover, and she's turned around and used all of that wealth on idols. Sort of like young gal marries a rich old guy, and the rich old guy dotes on her and gives her everything, and she turns around and takes all that money and spends it on younger lovers. That's what's going on. She would never be able to attract these other lovers were it not for the wealth that her first love had given her. So she is doubly faithless. She has not only dumped her first lover, but she hasn't even done that honorably. She hasn't even said, I can't stand you anymore, I want a divorce, and moved out. What she instead has done is kept him around as a sugar daddy and is now taking all of his substance and spending it on others. 23. And after all your wickedness, woe, woe to you, declares the Lord God, 
You built yourself a vaulted chamber and made yourself a lofty place in every square. At the head of every street, you built your lofty place and made your beauty an abomination, offering yourself to any passerby and multiplying your whoring. I was reading this and all of a sudden something went ding, ding, ding. We're in Isaiah 51, 17. Awake, awake, stand up, O Jerusalem. You who have drunk at the hand of the Lord the cup of his fury. You have drunk the dregs of the cup of trembling and drained it out. There is no one to guide her. Among all her sons she is brought forth. Nor is there any who takes her by the hand among all the sons she has brought up. These two things have come to you. Who will be sorry for you? Desolation and destruction, famine and sword. By whom will I comfort you? Your sons have fainted. They lie at the head of all the streets like an antelope in a net. They are full of fury of the Lord, the rebuke of your God. This lying at the head of all your streets, and here you have in Ezekiel, at the head of all your streets, you put vaulted chambers. What are we talking about there? Shrines. Have you ever been into a Catholic church and they have these vaulted little arches with a statue in it? You walk down a street in Italy or Mexico or any of these places, you see these little things that are a domed structure with an idol in there. You also see them in pagan countries. You go to Japan, you see these little shrines by the road, and they're a domed structure typically with a little statue in there, statue of Buddha, statue of some god or the other. So these domed things that they have are little shrines, and they're at the head of every street. So if you go back to Isaiah, where the young men are caught like an antelope in a net at the head of every street, who has caught them? Idols. They have fallen into idolatry on every street corner, would be the way we would say it. There is one of these little shrines with a statue in it. And it could be a statue of a pagan god. You know, today it would be a statue of the Virgin Mary or some saint or whatever, but it's the same thing. And they've got these things all over the city. And you see in Isaiah, when the place has been sanded off, Isaiah 51, when Jerusalem has been destroyed, the young men who should have saved her were caught in a net, we would say, on every street corner. And, oh, by the way, those things haven't gone away. You can walk through any part of the world, to include the United States, and you'll see these little shrines. And it's just a question of who they put in it. And if you look at some of them, they are adorned with silver and gold. They're very rich. They're very opulent, which is exactly what God is complaining about. You've taken the beautiful things that I have given you for your adornment, and you've turned around and made idols with them. That's what God is chapped about here. 1626. You also played the whore with the Egyptians, your lustful neighbors. Doesn't have much to say about the Egyptians, does he? Multiplying your whoring to provoke me to anger. Behold, therefore I stretched out my hand against you and diminished your allotted portion and delivered you to the greed of your enemies, the daughters of the Philistines, who were ashamed of your lewd behavior. You played the whore also with the Assyrians because you were not satisfied. Yes, you played the whore with them and still are not satisfied. You multiplied your whoring also with the trading land of Chaldea, Babylon. And even with this you were not satisfied. How lovesick is your heart, declares the Lord God, because you did all these things, the deeds of a brazen prostitute, building your vaulted chamber at the head of every street, making your lofty place in every square. So he repeats it. He does not like these little pagan shrines dotting his city. 
And I suspect that if you walk through Jerusalem now, you probably still see them. If you go through the places where they've got various kinds of churches, I suspect that you still see these little domed shrines with a statue in it or painted shrines with an icon in it. These things haven't gone away. This is not obsolete. 33. Men give gifts to all prostitutes, but you gave your gifts to all your lovers, bribing them to come to you from every side with your whorings. So you were different from other women in your whorings. No one solicited you to play the whore, and you gave payment while no payment was given to you. Therefore, you were different. This is not the case that you were economically bereft. You needed it to pay the rent. You know, just turn a couple tricks on the weekends to pay the rent kind of thing. You didn't need anything. I gave you all of my best. So it was not even the case that you were in dire straits and you had to go out to do this to survive. 35. Therefore, O prostitute, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, because your lust has poured out and your nakedness uncovered in your whorings with your lovers and with all your abominable idols, and because of the blood of your children that you gave to them, therefore behold, I will gather all your lovers with whom you took pleasure, all those you loved and all those you hated. In other words, she tried everything. Some of it was pretty cool. Some of it she didn't like. Doesn't matter. God's going to get it all. I will gather them against you from every side and will uncover your nakedness to them that they may see all your nakedness. And I will judge you as women who commit adultery and shed blood are judged and bring upon you the blood of wrath and jealousy. So there's two things here. One is her unfaithfulness, which really, really hurts. The second thing is she has shed innocent blood and he will recompense her for both of those. And again, we've said over and over again, but it's certainly worth repeating. Breaking God's heart is a terrible thing, but that's not typically what causes him to come down and sand things off. It's when in that process, you then become violent. And what happened with Israel, there was lots and lots of violence, which is detailed in lots of other passages of scriptures. But the particular violence that God is talking about here is child sacrifice. And it's described other places as making your children pass through the fire of Molech. But the bloodshed here that is specifically being talked about is child sacrifice. There's lots of other bloodshed to go around in this book. And I'm not suggesting that any of it is worse than any other. It's simply the subject here is the sacrifice of God's children on the idols of pagan gods. 40. They will bring up a crowd against you and they will stone you and cut you to pieces with their swords and they shall burn your houses and execute judgments upon you in the sight of many women. I will make you stop playing the whore and you shall also give payment no more. So what he's saying here is I am going to use the very nations that you played the whore with to sand you off and furthermore even though you have been intimate with those other nations, they are going to come upon you and they are not going to treat you as one with whom they have been intimate. The intimacy that you had with these other nations will buy you nothing except wrath. It doesn't buy you any favor with your potential enemies. 42. So I will satisfy my wrath on you and my jealousy shall depart from you. I will be calm and will no more be angry. Because you have not remembered the days of your youth, 
but have enraged me with all these things. Therefore, behold, I have returned your deeds upon your head, declares the Lord God. Have you not committed lewdness in addition to all your abominations? By the way, just as an aside, this whole list of stuff, I don't know whether you were paying any attention during the 60s and 70s when feminism was really hot. And one of the reasons that lots and lots of feminists went away from God is because they said God is nothing but a jealous, violent, abusive man. And I've heard that from lots and lots of feminists. God is no better than an abusive husband. Because of that, you sort of have a couple of reactions. One reaction is there was a lot of the church that then played this stuff down so as not to annoy the women. If you want to keep the women in the congregation, you can't talk about this stuff. So a lot of this stuff went by the wayside because feminists were so angry. It led to a very strong feminization of much of the church. If you're going to talk about that stuff, I'm not going to come to your church. So lots of preachers just quit talking about that stuff. And one of the things that I've said in other venues, you all remember back to Genesis 3, which is the fall. One of the things that God said is that I will put enmity between you and the serpent. And one of the things you can infer from that is Satan hates women. He hates everybody. Don't get me wrong. But he has got a special place in his heart for women because God put it there. And men are designed to protect women from that stuff. One of the things that we're seeing in our society is lots of forces, feminism is just one tactic, if you will. There have been lots of them. Have separated women from the men who are supposed to love them and protect them. And we have this phenomenon now where you've got all over the country these little one-bedroom apartments with mom and one, two, or three toddlers and a living boyfriend. And all of that is because Satan hates women. And he regards an unprotected woman as a target. Passages like this have been taken by Satan and sold to feminists as God's just another angry man. What do you need that for? What it's done is it's stripped away part of the word of God because lots of preachers won't talk about it in a mixed crowd. All I'm saying is, this is God. This is part of God. And you know, at the beginning of it, you had the loving, doting God who fell wildly in love with Jerusalem. And then having been dumped upon by this harlot, he slaps her around. And what they do is they pick out the passages where God's slapping them around and say, oh, you don't want to have anything to do with that. It's one of the things that keeps lots of the pagan religions in business. This false teaching by Satan that God is this one-dimensional angry man. Onward, 44. Behold, everyone who uses Proverbs will use this proverb about you, like mother, like daughter. You are the daughter of your mother who loathed her husband and her children. You are the sister of your sisters who loathed their husbands and their children. Your mother was a Hittite and your father an Amorite, and your elder sister is Samaria, who lived with her daughters to the north of you, and your younger sister who lived to the south of you is Sodom with her daughters. So again, this is one of those passages that indicates that we're talking about literal Jerusalem, because Sodom was destroyed way before it was occupied by Israel, and way before it became the seat of God. 47. 
Not only did you walk in their ways and do according to their abominations, within a very little time you were more corrupt than they in all your ways. As I live, declares the Lord God, your sister Sodom and your daughters have not done as you and your daughters have done. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. There in one sentence is what sanded Sodom off. Notice, she was also favored with material wealth, but she was not willing to use that material wealth to further anybody but herself. So we have violence and injustice as we saw in a vignette when the two angels show up there with Lot and the rabbis teach that the reason the inhabitants of Sodom were going to sodomize these people is to prevent having to show them hospitality and share anything. In other words, we're going to use them and run them out of town. So they don't take any of our stuff. 50. They were haughty and did an abomination before me, so I removed them when I saw it. Samaria has not committed half your sins. You have committed more abominations than they and have made your sisters appear righteous by all the abominations that you have committed. I sanded off the northern kingdom and I sanded off Sodom. And if I don't sand you off, I'm going to have to apologize to them. 52. Bear your disgrace. You also, for you have intervened on behalf of your sisters. Because of your sins in which you acted more abominably than they, they are more in the right than you. So be ashamed, you also, and bear your disgrace, for you have made your sisters appear righteous. And I will restore their fortunes, both the fortunes of Sodom, interesting, and their daughters, and the fortunes of Samaria and her daughters. And I will restore your own fortunes in their midst that you may bear your disgrace and be ashamed of all that you have done, becoming a consolation to them. In other words, I'm going to put you all back together and they're all going to look at you and feel good about themselves because they aren't as bad as you are. So, question then becomes, why did God send Samaria off first and why did he bring Judah back first, if they're so bad? What I will suggest to you is that the reason that they're coming back is because of a prophecy that was made by Jacob on his deathbed. And that prophecy says, Judah, you're going to bear the Messiah. And so Judah gets brought back from Babylon after a mere 70 years. Scoots into the land. We have the Messiah born and it's right back out into exile. What I'm suggesting is that Judah is simply providing the physical body that will bring the Messiah into the world and is no better than anybody else. And at least according to this particular passage of scripture, by the time they're sent into exile, they're worse. Again, you may do with that whatever you like. It makes sense to me because the pattern is the northern kingdom got sent into exile and they're still in exile. They haven't come back yet. Judah went out for 70 years, turned around, came back, gave birth to the Messiah, and turned around and went back into exile. That sort of fits with what's being said here. Would someone like to close in prayer?